conditions of system change. Thank you. Mm. Love the idea of gossip. Yeah, me too, Hannah. Try and try and take that away. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, you know, it's lovely to to hear Jim. And I think we're, what we're going to see here from from me is some things that are going to have quite connections with with what Jim was saying. And I was also interested when Tony was speaking in the leadership session this morning and his references to Bob Keegan. And you're also those who have read Bob Keegan will spot some references here. So I, as as Caroline was saying, I'm going to. I'm interested in, in approaches to systems thinking and how we view um, the world the world around us and how we apply it within um, the organizations and healthcare systems in, in which we work. So I'm gonna spend my kind of eight minutes allowance um, talking through some of that, sharing some ideas, how we might approach it. I think there's two reasons why I think it's, um, it's important to talk about this now. One is um, the focus at the moment on lots of positive um, comments about the collaboration and how people have worked together and come together and how systems have worked together. So how can we take that forward and, and work on some of our really wicked problems, those problems that have been within our healthcare systems for years. And the second piece is the focus, the really important and vital focus, I think, on compassion in leadership. Um, and I think to, to develop your, your the, the, a as a compassionate leadership requires us to develop our understanding of systems and our systems thinking. So that, that's kind of my argument about why we're gonna cover it. Um, one of the great things about lockdown, I finally worked out how to work Netflix um, and I'm a big film buff. So uh, one of the great films, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend, it's called Rules of the Game, a 1939 film by Jean Renoir. Obstensively, it's about social systems uh, before the outbreak of World War II. I was really struck, given we were listening to pilots a minute ago, I was really struck by one of the characters who was a pilot. And he drew an analogy between the systems of the aeroplane that he worked in, the, the hard systems, the design systems of an aeroplane, where somebody has sat down, an engineer has sat down and worked out how it all fits together. And when it breaks down, you can go to a blueprint and identify and break it all down and understand it. And when he's on the ground and the human systems that he's working with on the ground. And I, I, this quite really, really sung to me. The real misery of, of, of life is that everyone has their reasons. And Jim's point about trust is, you know, part of building trust is about seeking to understand the different perspectives. Um, one of the things um, in the past about leadership is we go in with this sort of view, innate view that we set the agenda. We know where we need to lead people. We just need to set the direction and people need to follow us more and more it's about us as servant leaders listening to people listening to the different perspectives and working through that and the analogy of systems i think is really important as well um, i think we often forget that we work in human systems and try and apply hard system approaches to it i think what i'm just going to suggest today is the human systems we work in we need an approach that i'm going to suggest an approach today that we might want to to take into some of our wicked problems. Systems thinking is most useful. And so as I'm talking, it might be helpful to think about your really wicked problems. The problems that, what I'm think, talking about here are the problems that have been there for years. They keep going away. We keep putting in projects. We keep you know, getting funding or business cases to solve them, but they keep coming back. It's those pernicious problems that we deal with um, in our working lives. And if you have that in mind, maybe start to think about how you can apply this, this thinking within your own, own lives. So let's get into the first um, thing I probably need to explain. What do I mean by systems thinking? Um, 
Well, I guess the, 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 the question perhaps to ask you, a uh, way, way to put it is, you've all got a mobile phone. If I was to ask you, how did you charge it this morning? Well, some of you would say, well, you'd, you'd put the, the, the lead in and hey, presto, it charged. So the electricity came through the lead. Well, you shrug and say, well, there was a plug through the wall. So the electricity came through the wall. And of course, we'll start to work out this story about the interconnectedness and so But the further out of that system you go, the less we understand and the less we know how it works. Ultimately, our phones um, work because some gunk out of the ground came through some oil company or some wind was collected somewhere. And suddenly our highly technological systems don't sound quite so technologically advanced anymore. The point about that is we tend to understand the bits of the system that are closest to us. The problem then is that when things start to go wrong, we assume the systems, that the solutions are closest to us. We see the bits of the system around us and we go looking and we assume that the solution is close to where the problem is seen. And that's why we, we love things like pathway mapping and, um, and, and so forth, because what we're trying to do is simplify the problem. We're trying to analyze, we're trying to diagnose, we're trying to drill down. And that's great about trying to understand and we'd love to drill down and then we find it's, you know, Mary and uh, bookings that that's the problem. And we love that because, you know, now we found the diagnosis and we found something to blame. But do we also step out and say, how is the system impacting on Mary? How are we all contributing to that? Because one of the important things I think I've noticed about systems is systems are really good at drawing root maps of blame. And so we're really good at pointing to where problems are in other bits of the system. It's very rare the arrows come back on us. And the other thing that we tend to do is we tend to blame the system and step outside it as if we aren't part of the system ourselves. And I think we all have to recognize that we are part of the systems in, in, in which we work. And so we need to move away from trying to do snapshots, trying to, trying to diagnose, trying to identify problems or try and fix problems in isolation, seeing how they're connected with the wider system around us. So what I'm going to just move on to is systems change. And so how I define systems change, how do we get into system change is shifting the conditions that hold the problem in place. As I say, our biggest problems for most of us have been there for a long time. We've talked about change for a long time, but nothing's happened. Or we've tried things, or we've taken so many steps, but things have, have drawn us back as, as Bob Keegan with his language of change has, has drawn out. And so one of the, the other issues that we have is we tend um, to be good crisis managers. We tend to respond to big changes. We see events. Um, there's a sudden problem and we rush to solve it. And the first question is, how do we fix it? Or sometimes it's, who do we blame? But rather than say, how do we fix it? A question should be, rather, how do we all see it? Because the idea that there's one single solution to our problems is, is a nonsense. Otherwise, we'd all be doing it. So therefore, we need to be thinking about what is it about our systems that are allowing these problems to perpetuate? And ultimately, what is it about our mental models, the stories, the beliefs, and the assumptions that we all have about each other and about how our systems work that are informing our responses to that, that problem. And so I just wanted to, to just suggest to you today 
when you're looking at the problem, when you're trying to understand why are we containing the, why are we perpetuating these problems? There's kind of six conditions we perhaps need to be looking at. And the danger in much of our systems working is we tend to focus on the explicit elements, the top elements of it. So we start to look at what we're doing, how we behave, what our practices are, how the money's flowing. But we need to see the connectivity between those things below the water in that iceberg analogy. What is it about our relationships that are holding the problem? What is it about the power dynamics and the behaviours? And ultimately, what is it about our beliefs and assumptions about how the system works, how we behave, the behaviours of others within our systems? And therefore, I'm just going to finish just saying there's kind of four steps, therefore, I'm going to suggest you need to think about with, as, you, as you approach a wicked problem understand when we talk about the system we use system as if we all understand what it means can we define the system and by defining it what's outside it and what's outside it will define what we're not going to, to cover and we're going to miss things what are the system forces at play the relationships and the power relationships that are going on what is it about the relationships with, between our partners about how we see each other that's holding the problem and ultimately how is power distributed within our systems that are influencing the decisions and behaviours? So thank you very much. Um, if anybody's interested in anything we've, we've, I've touched on today, please contact either Mark Pierce or myself and really happy to, to follow up with anybody. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you so much. Lots to think about there. And that was a really um, wonderful eight minutes of distilling all of the things that we have talked about so much around systems, uh, systems thinking and how I love the, the inverted pyramid that you've created about how when we often look at when we're doing work with, for instance, ICPs, we often look at those policies, those procedures, and actually the things that matter most are the things that are towards the bottom of the pyramid in terms of trying to help people to move to change. So thank you. And uh, Joe's popped your email in there and I noticed you gave a shout out to Mark and Piers who also helped produce that lovely presentation. So thank you so much. So next up, I think we have Rob. Um, and Rob said to me, I might not do a presentation because Jim and Gareth are bound to overrun. So I'm hoping you didn't rely on that, Rob, and you are in fact around and ready to pop up your presentation. Yeah. Remember, you are probably wrong, Rob. Yeah, well, that's not uncommon. So yes, here I am. Hopefully my slides have appeared. There we go. Oh, here, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, so remember, you're probably wrong. So thanks for joining me with this one. I'm Rob Davis, Director with NHS Select, and I um, have the privilege of working with lots of teams around the country around quality improvement. And it's probably that work that gave me the inspiration for this, this um, title, really. Remember, you are probably wrong. Maybe not the great inspirational leadership quote you were hoping for from a leadership conference, but let me try and explain my, my thinking on this. So a couple of months ago, I was working with an acute, acute team, acute hospital team, and um, they were focusing on fixing the problem of too many patients calling the ward after they'd been discharged home. And we started swimming around a bit in that and found out, you know, they were calling with simple things, you know, questions about medication and when their stitches were going to come out and when they need to see their GP and when they could mobilise. And the team sort of felt this was taking quite a lot of time and was actually taking them away from caring from the patients they had in front of them to deal with last week's patients. So I sort of said, well, why is that happening? And the, the sort of things that were coming out were very much, well, 
the patients aren't reading the leaflets that we give them and maybe they weren't listening properly to the to the doctor and the nurses the discharge you know information was being being handed out well I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing but that's kind of what they were were coming up with and what was really interesting about this team is they already knew the solution they were going to implement so they had their solution to the problem now that's not uncommon and anyone who's worked with teams will be quite used to them coming along with a, a ready-made solution to the to the problem in, in hand. And, and sometimes you'll come across teams who've got a solution with no problem to attach it to and they're sort of swimming around looking for a, for a problem. So the solution to too many patients calling the ward and patients not reading the leaflets was to produce a booklet. So it's kind of when you say it out loud that we're going to because patients aren't reading the leaflets, we're going to produce a booklet that you're actually that doesn't sound that that sensible. That's kind of the premise of coaching, actually. I think saying stuff out loud and and realizing it's not obvious or it's really obvious what you what you need to do. So I was thinking, oh, what do I do here? So do I just sort of point out to them? I don't think that's that's going to work. And I thought it was possibly a bad idea. So I said to them, OK, let's give it a go mainly because I don't like difficult confrontational conversations, but also, also maybe they, they knew something I didn't. And it's really easy to fall into the trap of creating a solution that sort of sounds sensible. And their solution reminded me of, of this diagram. So I forgot to move my slides on there. But um, this, this diagram here, which you may be familiar with, it's from the Institute for Safe Medicine in, in Canada. And it's called the hierarchy of effectiveness. And, and what it's got here is on the left hand side, the easy to do stuff, which is least effective rules, policies, education, information, training things. And they're often our go to things. But actually, in terms of improving things, sometimes they're not massively effective all the way up to those more high leverage, more effective of, of forcing functions and, and, and constraints and things. So. I felt morally justified in thinking this team was wrong because I've got a graph to sort of back this back this up that just, you know, rules and policies and education only get you only get you so far. So how can you stop yourself falling into some of these these traps? Well, one thing I would sort of suggest is maybe just stop, look, listen. Now, that's not a phrase that I've, I've made up. I've kind of borrowed it from the Green Cross Code and, and these guys. But actually, it's how we learnt road safety at school, that stop, look, listen. And I think it's quite sage for quality improvement as well. So just stopping and, and looking around, do we know about this problem? Do we know what's causing it? That sort of resonates with what Gareth has just been saying. Am I proposing something that doesn't, doesn't work? You know, look, look at what's going on, but look outwards as well. Has anyone else already solved this problem? Are some other people on Twitter doing some great stuff around that? And then finally, this listen, listen to really what's going on. Listen to the, the staff involved, the patients. And, and it's about listening to understand, not just listen to get a gap in the conversation so I can jump in with, with my so solution. So how did this team get on with their, with their discharge book club? Um, remembering that I had a graph that was going to show that they were they were wrong. Well, really, surprisingly, it was actually working. They were seeing a, a reduction in the calls when they were using the, the discharge booklet. I mean, they're still testing at the moment, but the early results are, are really good. So despite my graph, despite my years of experience, once again, I was probably wrong. Now, I've got loads of stories about 
being wrong or wrong solutions being implemented or good solutions being implemented badly. And, you know, the common factor in all of these, well, of me, obviously, but apart from me, you know, the common factor is I think we often just rush in with what looks like a, a good solution or an easy, obvious solution, or we discount a, a workable solution because we just decide it, it doesn't work on a, on a whim. You may well be familiar with the, the first law of improvement, which is every system perfectly designed to achieve exactly the results it gets. And I quote that a lot in improvement work and it makes us think about working with the system rather than looking at, at who's to blame in that, that system. But for today, I just wanna propose a second law, second law of improvement, which really resonated with me over the last few weeks and months, which is this. If you think you know the solution, you're probably wrong. So just stop. And that's probably a good place to stop as well. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's been interesting. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Rob. That was wonderful. And once again, coming under the, uh, under the eight minutes. So thank you very much for your marvelous contribution and your marvelous timekeeping. I popped a book that I recommended in the, uh, in the chat, which is called, uh, don't just do something, stand there, uh, which is a sort of riff on the same theme, which is that before we leap in and try and find a solution or try and implement the solution that we think is right, just take some time to stop and listen and talk to people. Um, and just had a lovely shout out in the, uh, the, the uh, chat box to say, Caroline, you're so lucky. What a wonderful team you have. And, and I absolutely agree with that wholeheartedly. I could not be more blessed. I often say I have the easiest job in the NHS. And here to confirm that as our final speaker is uh, Sue Kong, who is uh, head of our comms and marketing and um, is going to give us her final eight minutes of the NHS Select TED Talks on uh, her work on patient experience and sharing some highlights from that. Thank you, Rob. Hello, Sue. Oh, thank you so much. And hello to you all. It's always a bad idea to have a slot just before lunch, so I will stick to time. So this is really about me talking about things that we've been doing in the NHS in the patient experience program that's been running for over 10 years. And lots of the things I'm gonna talk about will be that I've developed with Joe and Carol and other colleagues across the team. One of the key things I want to kind of talk about as a concept is the perception is my reality and how we use the, our five senses in making sense of services. So you as a customer, if you're going to buy a new cardigan or a new car, you can touch it, you can touch the, um, the cardigan, try it on, don't like it, get a receipt, test drive a car, and you know exactly what quality looks like with products. As we move to services, it gets more difficult. Say, for example, after lockdown, you go to the pub, restaurant, and all the steak and chips with your friends. The chances are your steak and chips may be slightly different. Hey, you seem to have a bigger slice of steak than me. Or, hey, how come you've got more chips than me? But it could be by choice. You like your steak medium to well. And but if I go out to a pub with Joe, he may like it rare to medium. So in order for the chef and their team to satisfy two happy customers, you need to tweak it. So you can see why services gets more difficult. Here you can see healthcare and the NHS is right at the other extreme of services. We are professional services. This is where the staff has gone through many, many years of training and your customer, the patient, 
have no idea what good looks like. So what we do as human being is that we rely on our five senses to make sense of something that's very complicated and complex and we don't understand. What we see, smell, touch, taste and hear. Because what you're trying to do here is actually sell belief, trust, confidence and reassurance. So we had the wing factors talking earlier. If you were actually about to board that plane and if you see the uh, cabin crew boarding before you, what goes through your mind if you're looking at the pilot and their crew, looking a bit kind of disheveled, bags underneath their eyes, maybe smelling a bit of alcohol? Because if you weren't anxious then, you will be now. And this is why experience is so emotional and the perception is reality. Housekeepers once said to me, so can we choose a disinfectant that's very different from the one that we're using at the moment? It's so industrial smelling. There's one on the current list that's actually not so uh, strong and actually you can say it's unscented. So we said, no problem. One week, one ward, let's give it a pilot. Guess what happened? Complaints went up because it didn't smell clean. And it didn't matter how many times our housekeepers put on the chart by the hour, how many uh, hours by the day they've actually cleaned. You as a customer knows nothing about the disinfectant strength, but you were judging it, whether it smelled clean, it looked clean and all those things. So in many ways, what we're trying to build on is some of the great work that all of you are doing in your organizations. We all done the 18 weeks pathways, your clinical pathways, you mapped it all out. We now overlay it with emotional mapping, another technique, EDB, that you've also done. And you looked at how patients, uh, on this chart you can see how the feelings, the positive feelings on the top and negative feelings on the bottom. But here's a challenge for you. Can you now go back and map out your journey according to the five senses that your patients and the carers and the family and your staff also experience? Because if you do that, you're much closer to understanding where the patient comes from. As a layman who knows no Latin terms and have not been to medical school or nursing school to actually understand what you do. So that's it for me. And I just hope you enjoyed the rest of the today. I have thoroughly have, and I've learned so much from everybody else as well. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. That was absolutely wonderful. Eight minute presentations of you are much less exhausting, said someone. Yeah, and that was